Today on episode number 161 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Teresa Shaheen shares about teaching social entrepreneurship in two worlds. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our personal productivity so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. I'm pleased to be welcoming to the show today, Dr. Teresa Shaheen. She's the author of Introduction to Social Entrepreneurship, a comprehensive how-to guide based on her course at Harvard University. Dr. Shaheen is the Social Entrepreneurship Program Leader at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, Center for Health and the Global Environment. She divides her time between Boston and Beirut, where she helps launch a venture philanthropy organization supporting social entrepreneurs serving marginalized communities. Teresa, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you so much, Bonnie. Thanks for having me. You have such a unique background, and I just read your bio, of course, and I know that that only just skims the surface. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you first ended up getting into teaching and a little bit about your role. Sure. Actually, it, that's a fun question because I teaching is the one thing that I never thought I would end up doing when I graduated. I went back to school for my doctor of science degree in public health, thinking that my goal afterwards was to get into public health practice. At the time, I was working on a project with the UNFPA in the Ministry of Social Affairs in Lebanon. And my plan was always to get my doctoral degree, go back and be the regional director or something like that. And I always felt I don't want to teach because I was under the assumption that teaching is just passing on knowledge. And the reason that I actually began teaching is that there were so many questions that I still felt I needed to figure out after I finished school. And even though I did go back to practice public health, I wanted to teach in order to learn. And that's why I ended up going back and creating a course in my school, in my alma mater, called Introduction to Social Entrepreneurship, because I ended up venturing into this unknown field, or at least unknown to me, of social entrepreneurship. And I needed an anchor an academic setting to figure things out in. So in my case, it's definitely teaching to learn. Talk a bit about how your curiosity then first got piqued by social entrepreneurship. Do you remember when you first heard about that and when you first began to become interested and, and have your curiosity piqued? I remember exactly when. So in my last year of a five-year doctoral program, I went back to Lebanon and met with the team at the UNFPA that I had been working with. And and they said, oh, we're so happy to have you back. We're going to send you to this refugee camp and you're going to build community. And I found myself feeling so disillusioned and thinking, the way my brain works right now after five years of grad school, I don't think I can go back and do the same thing. I feel like a lot of the international development projects we have here spend decades and millions of dollars and we still can't tell whether they've had an impact. 
And so I started thinking about what might be some ways to have a more direct impact where I can actually experience and measure the impact of my work in my lifetime. And so I started sharing my ideas with people and they responded by saying, yeah, this is a thing. It exists. It's called social entrepreneurship. And so that's when I decided, okay, then that's the field that I want to go into. And that that term has really begun to evolve. I mean, it's this is still a relatively new area of study and a relatively new area of growth. Could you talk a little bit about some of the trends that are kind of going on now and, and where what's kind of emerging in that field? Definitely. So just to start off with a definition for the listeners who aren't familiar with it, social entrepreneurship is basically the act of developing new products, services, or methods that serve a social purpose, that serve to reduce disparities, and that can be done in a financially feasible way that doesn't mean that they have to be for-profit or non-profit, but there's some form of viability and sustainability that have some kind of innovation and that they may be more effective than previous methods that we've tried that build on previous evidence in tackling social challenges and that hopefully could potentially be replicable or scalable so that you're not just helping one person, but that you're actually transforming systems and challenging the status quo And some might go so far as to say creating new equilibria. So to give you an example of the ideas I started having in grad school and why people pointed me the way of social entrepreneurship, I was thinking about joining the World Bank. And then I started thinking, well, what if instead of governments giving money to governments, citizens could support citizens in development projects around the world? Like if there's something that I want to fix in my home country of Lebanon, I could post it on a website, ask people to pitch in and support me from around the world and get in there and roll up my sleeves and get my hands dirty and get it done. And so when I started sharing these ideas with people, they pointed me in the way of existing organizations for that were employing similar methods. And a great example of that is Kiva, which most people have heard of by now. I think it was started in 2004. And it Kiva basically is an online lending platform where you might have, let's say, someone living in poverty in rural Uganda who wants to start a small mom and pop shop and generate income for her family. And she doesn't have the capital to start that. So you can have a random person, let's say a Boston Red Sox fan, with $25 in their savings account. And they can lend that $25 to the lady in Uganda, get it back with um, Akiva actually adjusts for interest. So the, bo- the lady in Boston's not losing anything. Meanwhile, this $25 is being put to good use by the lady in Uganda. She's starting her shop, she's making money, and she's returning the loan. And meanwhile, her business is growing, her kids are in school, and she's earning income for her family. And the lender in Boston, this is still money that she has saved in the bank. It's just been put to good use in the, ta- in the meantime. So that's just one of the early examples of social entrepreneurship. And the underlying premise is that we've reached an age where we do have the cumulative resources and knowledge to really wipe the most pressing social challenges we face off the face of this earth. It's just that we need to mobilize them in an entrepreneurial way to kind of hack social problems. In what ways, when you introduce these ideas in Beirut, do you embrace 
the cultural values there? And in what ways do they challenge the cultural values there? And then if you would talk the same thing about when you introduce them in Boston, in what ways does the culture just really fit well with that? And in what ways does it stretch the culture and, and what the cultural norms are? That is such a great question. Uh, in Beirut, people think of themselves as entrepreneurial. Lebanese people pride themselves as being descended from the Phoenicians, and we've always been entrepreneurs, and everywhere we go around the world, we're entrepreneurial. So the idea of, of being entrepreneurial definitely resonates with people. However, there is definitely a mental barrier between traditional charity and traditional commerce. So in Lebanon, people are highly philanthropic. They help others in their village who can't pay their school tuition, who can't afford medications, etc. And they're highly entrepreneurial in a traditionally commercial way that oftentimes may have adverse environmental and social repercussions at the expense of, um, or in order to make profit. And so the idea, Social entrepreneurship is everything that lies in between traditional charity and commerce. And so it's been hard to really break that mental barrier um, and encourage people sticking to the micro lending example. I approached, so I started this organization in Lebanon called Al Fanad Lebanon, and it's a venture philanthropy organization. It was originally founded in 2004 by an Arab banker in London who started it in Egypt. And when I was recruited to launch it in Lebanon, I approached a bank here to for a corporate partnership and to see if the if they would like to do any corporate philanthropy. And I pitched a microfinance venture to them. Similar to the one I just described with Kiva, there's actually a group of ladies in a refugee camp in Lebanon that have formed a non-governmental organization that gives microloans for individual use. So this lady in in the bank had this traditional charity mentality about her response to me was how could I how could I accept to take money back from someone these poor people I should just give them money and not ask for money back from them and that kind of attitude is actually counterproductive because if you're giving someone money, if you're giving people money, you're not actually changing the status quo. You're helping them endure the status quo. But if the, what the effect of microloans is that it provides opportunities for them to raise their standard of living. And so you're actually changing the equilibrium. And, and that's the mental barrier that I've been struggling to bridge in Lebanon. So there have been some positive reactions to the idea of social entrepreneurship, and there have been some more challenging reactions. Yeah, it's very interesting because one of the main driving factors behind my starting this social entrepreneurship course at my alma mater is that I felt that the public health curriculum was really geared towards making us experts in the problem. So we were being trained to analyze the problem. And we would talk about it and write about it and publish about it. But we spent much less time talking about solutions. And I feel that most people who go into a field like public health are going in there to make a difference. And that's what motivated me to create this course, because I think that public health students need the acumen and the creative confidence to say, yes, I am the expert in the problem. But that's not my goal in life. That's my starting point. It's a means to an end. My goal is to solve it. And I have the tools and the skill set to solve it. And I can design and test and implement and evaluate interventions 
that are financially feasible and effective and potentially replicable. And so that traditional public health training was a barrier, but a lot of people were thinking like I was, and it was actually well received. It came at a time around the centennial of public health education. So I pitched the course in 2012, the same year I launched Al Fanar Lebanon. And in 2013, it was the 100 year anniversary of public health education. And we were really evaluating what are the competencies that need to be produced in public health hmm. students and, and why we need to be more action oriented in our curricula. Did the quest to go and analyze what competencies are needed, go anywhere? Is there somewhere online that we could link to that, that shows a little bit of that brainstorming? Or is that was that just more of a conversation? Oh, that yes, absolutely. It was a very formal initiative launched by the Harvard School of Public Health that I participated in. At the time, I was the chair of the Alumni Committee for Feedback and Assessment, and we worked very closely with the school. We had a centennial symposium where the dean shared the results, and we then actually, I shouldn't say we, I don't take any credit for this, but the school transformed the curriculum around that time, created a doctor of public health practice and for students who wanted to get a doctoral degree, but not in order to research, in order to practice, I definitely would have done that degree if it had existed when I went back to school in 2005. Mm -hmm. And um, there were changes made to the Masters of Public Health to make it longer also, and to make uh, to develop a core a set of core competencies that every single person graduating from the school would have, regardless of their program, degree or um, department. Yeah, I'd love to link to that. I'll, I'll uh, jot you an email to ask for it because that would be really interesting. I always like to see what kinds of competencies people are establishing in their programs and especially then how they change over time. And, and speaking of changing over time, I wonder if you would reflect for a bit on, you shared that when you were in school, it sounded like it was all a bit too theoretical for you and a little bit too focused on the problem, but you wanted to go start <laughs> actually getting your hands dirty and, and, and being part of a solution. Can you talk mm -hmm. a little bit more about how that informs your teaching today, your teaching approaches? And especially, I, I always love to hear about failures that you made along the way where, where you maybe had the heart to do something, but it didn't quite turn out the way you had hoped, and then what you were able to gain mm -hmm. from those experiences. Okay, sure. So definitely my practice does inform my teaching in the sense that I bring into the classrooms the lessons I learned at Al-Fanar and the struggles that the social entrepreneurs we work with face. And at the same time, I bring to the ground here in Lebanon the, the frameworks and tools and concepts that we are creating at Harvard to help structure the work of the social entrepreneurs. So one example is social franchising. I had a social entrepreneur a few years ago ask me, well, can I, let's think about social franchising as an option to replicate my social enterprise. What would that look like? No one in the Arab countries that I know of has done social franchising. Mm. And for our listeners who aren't familiar with this term, it's very similar to commercial franchising like a McDonald's or whatever, but more complicated because you're franchising a social venture where the bottom line is social impact and social change. 
And the finances are a means to an end. So you can't just have any business person franchise it. You need an organization with a track record, with an aligned mission, where you can provide the structure and the branding and the methodology to ensure consistency. And at the same time, give them the space to contextualize and be flexible to meet the local context and needs. So I had a student in my social entrepreneurship class at Harvard take the lead on a literature review and we produced a peer-reviewed publication that provided a seven-step framework for social franchising, which we're now applying here in my work in Lebanon, and I hope others will too, because they can read about it in the peer-reviewed journal article. So I think that teaching and practice and research all inform each other. And let's see, let me think of a fun failure to share. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so do you mean failure in teaching? Oh, any, any could be anything, certainly. I mean, because you, you do have such an... an I'm going to use the word idealistic, but I mean it in a complimentary way. I mean, so many times someone being idealistic is um, sometimes that's lauded as an insult, but I mean it, you have just wonderful uh, a heart for wanting to make a difference. I know that's also something that's overused, but then that gets messy. And one of the things that came up on a prior episode was Amy Collier. She and a a colleague of hers, uh, Jen, and I'm forgetting Jen's last name, but they came up with this term, not yetness, that when you're working Mm -hmm. in this kind of a field, it just gets so messy. I mean, we have a wonderful ideal. We have what we know it should look like, but then we're coordinating with mm-hmm. people and people are complex and don't quite work as uh, predictably Definitely. as we might like them to. And not only Definitely. are you working with people, but you're working cross-culturally too, which just only adds to the complexity. So I'm sure things have gotten messy. Maybe you can't think of a failure, but you can think of something that got well, real messy. You, things have definitely gotten messy. And I think that because I actually expect failure as data, Mm. maybe I don't think of it as failure the way someone else would. I think about it as data to inform an iteration. Mm. So probably every day I experience failure because nothing ever turns out the way you think it's going to, especially in Lebanon. (laughs) So as an example, we had this food truck that we wanted to launch for this women's catering venture in a refugee camp in Lebanon. And the reason we seeded this catering venture is because women wanted to work to produce income for their families. And they felt that the food industry in Lebanon is one of the few industries, the low cost food industry, that no matter how bad the social, economic and political situation is, people need to eat. So they felt that cooking is something that they enjoyed doing that brought them joy that there's a market for. And so we worked with them to create this catering company called Sufra, which means feast in Arabic. And they didn't get enough orders at first to break even. And so we were brainstorming and business planning and thinking about how we could increase the volume of orders. And maybe instead of making it passive where they're waiting for orders, we can make it proactive where they get out there and people can see their food and smell it and come buy it. And so one of our team members at Al-Fanad, actually it was the executive director, Mirna Atalla, who suggested this, thought, what about a food truck? You know, we've seen movies like Chef and we've seen food trucks in cities all around the world. We don't have them. At the time, there weren't many in Lebanon, but it's picking up now. And these ladies really, at first, they were kind of questioning the idea, like, oh, you mean we'd have to leave the camp and who would drive the truck? And what if it broke down? And is this sanitary? And are you sure? So it was definitely a big question mark. 
But then as we worked on it and as we crunched the numbers and, and thought about it conceptually, we realized this might actually be able to work. And so we did a huge crowdfunding campaign on Kickstarter. It gained a lot of media attention and we raised more money than we asked for. And then it just took forever to make the truck happen. Mm. It was one obstacle after the other. First, the Ministry of Social Affairs would not sign to give this nonprofit a license to operate a commercial vehicle. Then we wanted to register a for-profit company so that we wouldn't need the signature of Ministry of Social Affairs. And then we couldn't register it because they didn't own the, the lease of their office. You can't own land in a refugee camp. So they couldn't register a for-profit company. They had to go rent space outside the refugee camp. And then they actually went to buy the truck and, and the paperwork wasn't in place. So it was definitely one string of obstacles after the other. And there were so many times that we wanted to give up. But it, it started, it became to mean a lot more than just a food truck. It became to, to be, it became a symbol of all the barriers against social mobility in this country and against these women be a being able to provide a livelihood for their family. And so with a lot of support, pro bono support from lawyers, we had a social justice filmmaker named Tom Morgan who partnered with Susan Sarandon as his executive producer. They're making a movie about this called Sufra. And he spent two years coming to Lebanon and supporting with al support. We finally managed to make the food truck happen. And I think that you never know when when you can call it a success and when you can call it a failure, because even the food truck, it's it's not a success yet and until, you know, it's out there and we're getting the orders and we're generating income and, and these women's lives are actually changing. So honestly, I think maybe that was a long-winded story, but it's literally the story of my life. Mm. And it's just a way to say that success and failure go hand in hand together and that it's it's not black and white on what's a success and what's a failure. It's all just data. You tried something, you got results. It might be null results. It might be positive results. It feeds into your equation of what works and what doesn't. And you just keep iterating until you get the results you want. I'm hearing this fascinating paradox from you as you share your stories, because it is like you both have patience and a complete lack of patience all at the same time. <laughs> Does that make any sense to you? <laughs> a good way to put it there's definitely this restlessness like we need to get results but also there has to be an openness in terms of you start with a definition of success that you're working towards but you have to be open to the unknown you don't know what it's going to turn out like and most of the time it turns out to be something completely different so you just have to be open to receiving data about and just trying things and seeing what works and what doesn't. If you call it a failure, then you're just going to be discouraged all the time. <laughs> so I guess my message is to just embrace failure as part of the process. And for someone who is has been trained as a scientist the way I have, I think of social entrepreneurship as just applying the scientific method to solving social problems. So you form a hypothesis, you test it, you collect data, you analyze the results, and then you keep iterating. And that's really what social entrepreneurship is. Talk about your book and in what way it helped you or did not help you reflect on your own practice. It definitely helped me. So I decided to create a textbook out of my course at Harvard. And the idea was, A, I didn't have a consolidated resource for my students. I had to 
dig things up as I went along. And B, I figured, why does everyone have to start from scratch just because I did? Let me put this down on paper and then it will make it easier and more fun for others to start courses on social entrepreneurship around the world. And so at first, the idea was for each week in my course to become a chapter. And then the book would be seven or eight chapters because my course, depending on the semester, is seven or eight weeks. It's a quarter, a half semester. It actually turned out that when you put things down on paper, you end up going into detail much more. And so each week turned into two chapters, and now it's a 13-chapter book, which is ideal for a full semester. And definitely was a case of me having to gain knowledge and figure things out as I went along. Because when you're documenting something in writing, there's less room for error. And so what I decided to do was co-create the book. I included an interview in each chapter with a leading social entrepreneur from around the world. Mm -hmm. I made sure to include women and men, people from all the different parts of the world and all the different sectors. And I included existing tools and resources that people were using in existing organizations that supported social entrepreneurs. So if you read the preface, which actually anyone can read on Amazon for free, you just click on look inside. I love it when Amazon does that, it shares free content. So if you read the preface, it says, you know, uh, I did not invent anything in this book. I am just the big nerd who sat down and typed it all out. So this was all here before me. I just put it together in a framework that helped my sanity in terms of organizing my thoughts and developing and evaluating and implementing social ventures. And it's been very helpful for my course and my students, but more importantly, it's been helpful for my practice. And it's been helpful in thinking beyond social enterprises, uh, which are, you know, small social ventures, because social entrepreneurship is about much more than starting a new venture. You could work in a government agency or in a huge corporation, or you could be a volunteer without a job, and you could formulate and implement an initiative that creates social change without forming a new company. So I always try to hammer that message home to my students, readers, and listeners that social entrepreneurship is not just new ventures. It's thinking entrepreneurially about solving social challenges, and there are ways that you can increase your odds of success, your chances of making that change more in-depth and long-lasting by applying these existing tools and frameworks that help you evaluate whether it'll work or not. One example, just to be concrete, is the theory of change, which is a framework to think about what is it about your proposed activity that makes you think it's actually going to cause the effect that you want it to and, and actually change this challenge. So it's just a way to test the underlying assumptions and make sure that this work is going to cause this outcome. And, and to try to think about the unintended consequences also that you might want to avoid. I'm really intrigued by your discussion on how you put the book together. And, and it's because it's, it's paralleling something that I just read last night. I'm in the middle of reading Stephen Brookfield's Becoming a Critically Reflective Teacher. And he was reporting on someone else's research. Unfortunately, I don't have that person's name in front of me because it was late last night. <laughs> That's my excuse. But but he was talking about if you, one of the things that we've talked about on the show before is to, and it's been showing up a lot on Twitter and in the blogosphere is, is going through your syllabus. And do you only have textbooks by 
old white guys, right? And so, and and one of the things he talked about is that sometimes what he would try to do and what others would try to do to remedy that is to then add into the mix people of color, women, et cetera. But that what that does is actually then make the dominant ideology even more powerful. That if you're if you're just adding it to the mix, you're not actually doing the change that you need to make to pre- Interesting. And so you've did that from the ground up with your book, which is wonderful. So it then then when people would go to implement it, they're not going to have to have to deal with this problem of just trying, let's mix in a few, a few other authors that might, you know, negate or, or add some literal color to the, to this main primary author. But um, anyway, he was just talking a little bit about the dangers of doing that. And that's something I I went, oh, gosh, like, I already knew I hadn't gone far enough in my own teaching and the readings that I assign. And that added even more challenge to my thinking, I'm going to definitely be carrying that with me outside of reading his book. So that's really interesting. There was some initiative that I know you wanted to share about before we get to the recommendations segment. And we hadn't, you had just I said do. there's some big news that had come out. Do you want to share a little yes. bit about that before we do? Yes, thank you for giving me this opportunity. So we basically just launched a campaign at al my organization. And the goal of the campaign is to wa- raise awareness and funds for social entrepreneurs in the Arab countries. Because this is a growing field and because this is a part of the world where we need social entrepreneurs so much, we have increasingly pressing social challenges. We've created this campaign where anyone can get involved And it it goes back to that message I was saying earlier. You don't have to start your own venture to make a difference. Whatever your job is, whoever you are, you can get involved in an innovative way in social innovation. And one way to do that is by supporting existing entrepreneurs. So I'd I'd love to invite our listeners to visit our website at alfanar.org slash campaign. That's spelled A-L-F-A-N-A-R.org Uh, slash campaign, read about the amazing social entrepreneurs that we support and get involved in any way that resonates with you. That is fantastic. Thank you so much. And it's so energizing to talk to you. And this is the time in the show where we're going to talk about recommendations. And the first one I have is if people want to hear more from you, you were actually on Coaching for Leaders, which is my husband's podcast. And that episode is 292 how to solve a really big problem. And that's when I first heard your voice and learned a bit about you. And so people could go listen to that episode. And I'm going to be linking to that in the show notes. Yes, please listen to both. (laughs) And that'll be at teachinginhighered.com slash 161. You can see all the links to the things that we're talking about on this show, including the food truck film and the link that you just mentioned to the campaign. So that's my first recommendation is to go take a listen if you want hear more about Teresa's work. And then I want to read a blog post from Seth Godin. And for people who may not be familiar with him, he is a marketer and is has always his whole career been kind of pushing the edge and thinking differently about things. And he wrote a book about, uh, oh gosh, it has the name Purple Cow in it, but I'm forgetting the title of it. Let me look it up really quick. Purple Cow. Purple Cow. <laughs> 
Uh, Purple Cow. That's actually the name of the book. <laughs> Transform your business by being remarkable. That's how it's from 2003. That's how I first remember him. But he's written many, many books since then. He's a prolific writer. And this is a post that he wrote called Like Riding a Bike. Again, this is by Seth Godin. People talk about bike riding when they want to remind us that some things once learned are not forgotten. What they don't mention is how we learned. No one learns to ride a bike from a book or even a video. You learn by doing it. Actually, by not doing it. You learn by doing it wrong, by falling off, by getting back on, by doing it again. P.S. This approach works for lots of things, not just bikes. Most things, in fact. Oh, I love it. Thank you, Bonnie. That's exactly what I was saying about failures, is that that's actually the pathway. Thank you for sharing that. Oh, you're welcome. And I'm going to pass it over to you now to see what you have to recommend to us today. Okay. Actually, what I'm reading these days is Getting Beyond Better. And it's a book that came out while I was busy with my head down writing my own book. So I never got to read it. It's also by um, a leader in the, the field of practice of social entrepreneurship, Sally Osborne of the School Center and Roger Martin. And I think it's a great compliment to my textbook, Introduction to Social Entrepreneurship, with many of the same messages using different and complementary stories. So I'm enjoying it very much and learning a lot. And it always helps to think about different perspectives to expand, to get out of your bubble and expand your definitions and your perspectives. So I hope that listeners will check out both. It's been very inspiring to read this book and um, in parallel with, with mine. That sounds wonderful. I'll definitely link to that in the show notes. And I'm just so appreciative of your time for investing in the teaching in higher ed community and for sharing all your experiences. I'm definitely going to be thinking about how you don't even call it failure, but you talked about restlessness and openness. And that is going to be a big thing I'm going to be reflecting on today and beyond. And messiness. Yes. You called it messiness. <laughs> I like that. Just embrace the messiness. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for your time and for being on the show. Thank you, Bonnie. Thanks once again to Teresa Shaheen. What an honor it's been to talk to you today for the podcast. And your passion really is infectious. And we really appreciate hearing about social entrepreneurship. If people want to learn more about this episode, you can go to teachinginhighered.com slash 161. And that's where you can access the show links. If you'd like a more regular communication, you're welcome to sign up for the weekly update. And that you can subscribe to at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. And you'll get just a single email each week with the show notes included, as well as an article about teaching or productivity written by me. Thanks so much for listening. And we'll see you next time.